0: Our scripture lesson this morning is from Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. I'll give you a minute to grab a Bible. If you don't have your own Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you, or if you have your electronic devices or whatever. I know at home I use my phone when I'm reading, but on Sunday I just like the feel of the Pages of the Bible between my fingers. So, Uh, from Romans 2, uh, verses 1 through 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed." but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: So just a note before we start... um if you've been with us, we're preaching through the book of Romans, and we are about to take a break. I'm informing you of this now because I know a few of you have been reading ahead. Um, like we said a few minutes ago, Lent is about to start, and we will have a separate Lenten sermon series, and next week, kind of looking forward to Lent, we're going to do a one-off sermon kind of explaining some of why that is going on. Do not fear if you are enjoying the process, although I suppose celebrate if you're getting tired of it, but um, we will come back to Romans and pick up in verse 17 after Easter, but, um, but just so you're aware, mainly I know A few of you have been kind of studying and reading ahead, which is wonderful, and if you want to do that, I'm not going to stop you, but if you um, don't be surprised by that next week. Before we come and look at this text, let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for all of the rich blessings that you give us, and especially for the blessing of each other, Lord, um, as we live together as your body. Speak to us now through your word. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under it. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Help us all to be attentive to your truth. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, so yesterday my wife and I went with the kids and watched the Lego Batman movie, which is really, really funny, and, um, comes as close to a pastoral recommendation from the pulpit as I guess I'm willing to give movies about Lego Batman. But but I was thinking, it's such a quotable movie, and it reminded me of certain other quotable movies, and especially a movie that I would argue is perhaps one of the most important films ever made, which is The Princess Bride, (laughs) um, if some of you guys have seen it. It's funny and engaging and, like I said, incredibly quotable. And I, think, I was thinking about that because there's this quote that I think about a lot when I come to certain biblical texts. Um, this isn't the quote, but there's this character named Vizzini who is um, he's kind of the conniving villain who's sort of smart and thinks he's a lot smarter than he is and likes to, you know, I mean, use big words and come up with elaborate plans. And if you've seen the movie, you know that his favorite word is inconceivable, He says that over and over during the movie, right? Whenever his plans go wrong. And finally, like the tenth time that he declares something is inconceivable, he's looking over the cliffs of insanity and sees the dread pirate Roberts climbing up behind them with no rope, and he says, inconceivable! And then this is the quote. His friend Inigo Montoya turns and looks at him, and he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. That quote, that phrase, pops into my head a lot. And not just with words, right? Not just when I'm kind of indulging that dark place in my heart that gets bothered about grammar, like when people say literally and mean figuratively. But um, I I often have that phrase pop into my head when, um, when I see us kind of take the Bible in a very simple and surface way. So for example, the other day I saw someone Not someone from Kish, so don't look around, but um, someone on Facebook shared this kind of inspirational post about the power of positive thinking and, you know, believing in yourself and believing that you can do it, which is all great stuff, but they they, they based it all off of this quote from Joel chapter 3, which was, let the weakling say, I am strong. And so they say, see, like, even though you feel weak, just tell yourself, like, I'm strong and I can do it. And again, I'm, I'm all for that sentiment, but, um, but I know what the book of Joel is about, and I thought to myself, I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. And, um, and sure enough, when I checked, um, that's actually God mocking the nations um, and telling them that even though they're weak, they're deluding themselves and that he's going to come trample them down and their blood will run like wine, which does not at all fit with with the Facebook post that was quoting the verse. But but anyway, I say that because I was thinking exactly that same phrase and that same thing about a part of our text for this morning. If you look at verses 9 and 10, um, Paul makes this declaration. He says that there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And those verses, when you read it like that, they seem to be saying what I think all of us kind of naturally believe about the world and salvation. We believe that, you know, there's kind of good people and bad people in the world, and that we're the good people, right? And that come Judgment Day, God will kind of sit down and tally up our goodness and badness and say, yeah, on the whole, you're a pretty decent chap, you know, welcome to eternal life. And if Paul could hear us say that, even though I think that's just intrinsically in our world and in our culture and in a lot of people's hearts the way we think, I think Paul would say, I don't think that those words mean what you think they mean. I don't think they mean what you think. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that these verses are continuing this argument that Paul has been making, this argument that the truly righteous are righteous because of faith, not works, and that argument rests on this idea that we are sinners, fundamentally, all of us, that all of us are under judgment. And it's leading him towards this ultimate declaration in chapter 3, that there is no one righteous, not even one. This case is that we are not judged the way we just said, or rather, that we are judged the way we just said, but that we shouldn't be nearly as confident as most of us feel that those scales are going to fall in the direction that we want them to. We shouldn't be nearly as confident in our goodness. To understand this, then, we need to walk through our text for this morning. Paul's telling us that these verses we just read, we should not read them and feel excited, we should read them and be cautious, and maybe even a bit fearful about our own works, because all of us are ultimately going to fall on the evil side of that equation. All of us are deserving of God's judgment on our own. Paul makes this case in this text through three arguments, all right? First, that our own judgment shows our condemnation. Second, that God judges our intentions. And third, that God judges impartially. We are all deserving of God's judgment because our own judgment shows our condemnation, because God judges our intentions, and because God judges impartially. First, our own judgment shows our condemnation. Paul starts by arguing that even without God's holiness or any of that entering into it, we're condemned simply by by our own judgments, and in particular by the judgments that we pass on others if we applied them to ourselves. So look at verse 1. He says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass a judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass a judgment do the same thing. So to get this, Paul's kind of been laying a trap for his readers in chapter 1. And we didn't, we didn't talk about it there, right? So chapter 1 is about human sin and human beings, so it applies to all of us. But you might have noticed as we were going through the end of chapter 1 that Paul talks about Them. He uses the pronoun they, right? They suppress the knowledge of God for idols. They are darkened in their understandings. They are sexually immoral. And those verses climax in this massive list of sins that Paul gives that you might remember from last week. He says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And you can almost see the heads nodding, right? As people are kind of reading Paul's letter, right? They're saying, "Yeah, Paul, you tell them, right? You tell those pagan people out there how terrible they are." And so Paul Paul gets them nodding, right? the way that religious people often do, and then he turns the table here in verse 1. He says, but you, who are passing judgment right now, you are without excuse, right? He gets his audience nodding yes, and then he says, but no, those people, they're you. You are those people because, he says, we do the same things. In the first place, that list that I just read, you hear it and we love to say, oh yeah, that's about those people, but when you actually think about it, that is a list that none of us are innocent of, right? Greed, envy, deceit, gossip, wishing someone ill, I mean, come on, those are sins that all of us at at different points in our lives are guilty of, right? I mean, showing no mercy and being arrogant are exactly the sins Paul's hearers are doing while they're nodding their heads thinking about those terrible people on the outside, Even for the bigger, more obvious sins that he lists, right? One of the things scripture always insists is that we can't pretend innocence to those sins when we're harboring them in our hearts. That's why Jesus tells us that hating someone is like murder, and lusting someone is like adultery. We might not be acting those things out, right? But we're still worshiping the same idols. You don't get holiness points simply because you're too timid to act out your fantasies in the real world. And so we're all, by our own standards, he's saying, guilty of a lot more evil than we're willing to admit. That's why he goes on to say in verse 2 that now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, that when we see them in others, we agree, yeah, that's true, they're bad, that's the truth, and then if that's true, as verse 3 would put it, so when you, a mere human being, pass a judgment on them and yet do the same things, Do you think that you will escape God's judgments? That if we say, yes, you know, when I see this out in the world, it's true that that's bad. Why do I think that when I'm the one doing it, somehow that's not also true of me? We are always much more forgiving of our faults than the faults of others, right? You know what I mean. I remember growing up, I had this friend. I knew him through elementary and part of high school, and his parents were, I mean, they were terrible, right? And not in the, like, up-for-debate way, like they would scream these profanity-laced arguments at each other while I was at their house sometimes, and in the categories I have now as an adult, right? They were physically and verbally abusive at times. I mean, but what I remember about that is in the midst of all of that, I would be at his house sometimes, and they would launch into these long diatribes about what terrible parents the other kids in town had, right? And even as a child, I remember thinking, that's crazy, but it's a craziness that while maybe a little more naked in their case is a craziness that all of us share because we all do the same thing, right? Maybe not in that way, but I am often blind to the sin in my life while I see it in others. If anything, there are times that what I, when I examine my heart that I realize the sins that most frustrate me in other people frustrate me the most because they're the sins that are most true of my heart. We recognize that when we reflect on it. And sometimes we point that out in order to call us to be more gracious to each other, which is good and true, right? That when I recognize that I am a sinner, I'm supposed to give grace to the sins of others. But here, Paul's doing the opposite. He's kind of saying, there's some truth to what you see in that too, right? That there is a destructiveness to that sin, and you know it does lead to hurts and problems that you maybe recognize more clearly in others. And so what you need to remember is that that's true of your sin as well. I mean, we can do that thing, right? Where we see things in the world and name them as bad, but don't see them in our own hearts in all kinds of ways. One I was thinking about just this week, right? In our media-saturated world, we spend a lot of time hate-watching the rich. Do you know what I mean by hate-watching? You know, we watch these shows where they're in these like big mansions and throwing these elaborate parties, and we, we sit there and we judge them, right? We think... That is wrong to have all of that money and stuff and not be satisfied and not be generous and not be grateful. That is, you know, inexcusable greed. But the thing is, we recognize at least sometimes by any global standards, we're all kind of in that category, aren't we? I mean, I know it doesn't feel like it to us, but it doesn't really feel like it to those people on those television shows either. They live in gated communities, and we live in the better parts of the United States, and it's easy for us all to be kind of blind to it. But, I mean, 17% of people in the world own a refrigerator, Have you ever thought about that? 17% of households own a refrigerator. And I have a a second refrigerator in my office basement because it seems like so much work to walk upstairs and get a bottle of water from my main fridge, right? I mean, only 10% of households in the world own a car. A billion people are starving. They don't know where food's going to come from tomorrow. 2.6 billion people live without what academic people call adequate sanitation, 2.6 billion, which is like seven Americas, right? Without adequate sanitation, which is the polite way of saying they don't have working toilets. And I complain because my 4G network is kind of slow sometimes and because it takes five minutes for my heated car to warm up in the sub-zero weather so that it's comfortable to sit in and because I'm having the same meal two nights in a row, right? When people are starving. By any sensible measure on the stage of the world, I am in that rich and blessed category. I'm part of that 1%. I am a high roller. Elizabeth could be on the Real Housewives of Stillman Valley. And that half of the world's population that makes less than $8 a day could watch that and think those same things. What is wrong with these people? to have all that money and stuff and not be more grateful and generous and content. That is the worst sort of greed. All those things that we judge, right, we are so often guilty of. We always need to be working to be honest with ourselves about the seriousness of our own failings. My heart is immensely deceitful about sin. I mean, think about that, that, that picture that we kind of have, right? Of, of God weighing up the good and evil deeds, like he's putting us on a scale. You know the thing that's striking about that picture when you talk to people is that I have never met a human being that does not think they are on the good side of that scale. I mean, if, I, I'll, I'll, if you went to prison and asked people there for violent crimes, I imagine that 99% of them would tell you that on the whole they're good people, right? Hitler thought he was a good person. Not to, I mean... That's true of every human being, and if that's true, then that needs to be a caution to all of us, because if we think that some of those people are wrong, then it means that it's entirely possible that we are wrong too, that we grade ourselves on a curve, and that when we have to confront our own hearts, we are troubled by the fact that God doesn't, that his judgment, as Paul says, is according to truth. So that's the first part of Paul's argument. The first way he kind of seeks to convict us. But he presses it further. He says, sure, our own judgments condemn us, but it isn't just us who are the judges, right? It's God. And that strikes deeper than what we just said because God also judges our intentions. God judges our intentions. So this is where we come to those verses we read at the beginning, right? Look at them again. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So here's the deal. Those verses are, in one sense, saying what we think, right? They are saying that if our actions are the grounds that we stand on before God, then he will judge our goodness and evilness. But the problem, the place that we get it wrong, is what we think he means by those two categories. So Paul, in verse 6, says that God will repay each person according to what they have done, he will repay them for what they've done. And then in verse 7, he defines what he means by goodness, all right? He says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life, right? So he says it's not just doing good, but there's two parts he adds. The first is that they're per- he's talking about persisting in doing good, right? Sticking with it, that goodness is the place that we are living in our actions, if we want to be delivered. It's not just that we do some good things sometimes, it's that that's that's the neighborhood that we dwell in. And then it gets a lot harder even than that because we see that it isn't just the deeds that we're persisting in, but that he's saying our motivations matter. It's not just that we're doing good, it's the reason we're doing it, he says, to seek glory, honor, and immortality. That only good deeds done seeking God's glory and things that are honorable and eternal life Or what he's counting as good. And that becomes even more clear. When he talks about evil. Um, If you look at verse 8. He says. But for those who are self-seeking. And who reject the truth. And follow evil. There will be wrath and anger. Right. There's a progression there. It's not just those who do evil. But those who are doing evil. Because they reject the truth. Because they're blinded to it. And they reject the truth. Because they are self-seeking. They're self-seeking. They're selfish in their actions. And that's what makes their actions sin. Our intentions matter. Now, I mean, we we actually get that intuitively in one sense, right? I mean, like, we get that the guy who is humbly and anonymously at the soup kitchen every week trying to serve the people there, that there's a difference between that guy and the celebrity that shows up for, you know, for an hour before Thanksgiving, right, for a photo shoot. We understand that the first guy is doing this thing out of generosity, but the second person is probably doing it for more selfish reasons, That is true in scripture of all of our actions, that for something to be good, our intentions also matter, right? So wrong actions are always wrong, but good actions can still, at least in an ultimate sense, be wrong if they aren't done out of a desire to glorify and seek after God. I mean, I can be generous in order to make myself look good. I can use my gifts in order to call attention to them. I can do good deeds out of pride or envy, or a number of other kind of wrong motives. And those good deeds then are actually colored by that sin. We mentioned this term already. Some of you might remember it, total depravity, right? That theologians use to try to describe the way that the Bible talks about our sin. And we said total depravity does not mean that everyone is as bad as they could be, right? It doesn't mean that people don't do great things. It doesn't mean that everyone is sort of like this evil, crazed, you know, cannibal. But it does mean that um, every part of us is colored by sin or warped or twisted by sin. So that not just our actions, it's not just our actions, right, but it includes our, our thinking and our feeling, and importantly, it includes our intentions. And so then that means that the other piece of that idea of total depravity is that if that's true, then almost everything we do to some extent is colored by sin, even the good things that we do. Not that they're all outwardly bad things, but that we can't escape sin just because we think we're obeying, or we're avoiding the kind of, like, bad outward actions. I mean, let me just give a very personal example, all right? Every week, I stand up here, and I do this thing, and I think this will be maybe a useful example, because you guys don't do it, but it'll make sense. Like, I, I try to preach God's word, right? And I do that because I think that that's a good thing, you know, externally to do. But inevitably, within my heart, it is a complicated action, right? There are parts of me that want to do it for good reasons, to glorify God, to serve him, to serve you all. But there are other parts of me that have other things going on, right? That I want, to, um, that I want people to like me, <laughs> that I want to look impressive to people and have them kind of admire me. And every week I fight and struggle in prayer as I prepare to come up in the pulpit and seek to do this thing and seek as much as I can to have it be this stuff, right, that's driving it and not this stuff. But every week, I know that somewhere in the dark shadows of my heart, some of those wrong desires are still lurking. And every human action is like that. Our intentions are always mixed, or at least mine almost always are. I mean, I mean, sometimes you don't even see it in the moment, but like, I do something nice for somebody, right? And in the moment, I feel like I'm doing it out of pure motives, but I see this thing happen, like an hour later, where I start having this irresistible desire to just tell somebody about the thing that I did. You know what I'm talking about? That I so want to just kind of let it drop in conversation. That humble brag kind of thing, right? About this nice thing I did for this person. And suddenly I have to realize that maybe I wasn't just doing this thing for this person. Maybe I was doing this because I wanted to look good too. Now, none of that means that the fact that our motives are mixed should keep us from doing good things, all right? That's the one mistake I feel like it's easy to fall into. I do still stand up here in the pulpit and preach that stuff, even though that's something we're going to wrestle with in our hearts. That doesn't—it's it's like, you know, Jesus says that being angry, you know, with your brother is like murdering him, but that doesn't mean that you should murder your brother, all right? <laughs> um, it's that same sort of thing. But it does mean two really important things for us as we struggle with sin. First, that reality that God judges our intentions means that we need to be engaged in that struggle at the level of our intentions. That my motives will always be mixed, but if I'm not struggling against the bad motives, they're going to become less and less mixed and not in a good direction. Right? That um, I fight to make this, for example, about God and his glory, not because I perfectly succeed, but because if I don't, I know that this thing will become more and more about me and my glory. And second, and this is Paul's point, it means that none of us are safe on the scales of justice. That not only do we kind of lie to ourselves about the bad things that we do, but we also often lie to ourselves about the good things, right? That if you're weighing it up, it's not just all the outwardly bad stuff that you have to put on this side. It's also the good things that we do out of pride or selfish ambition or other sinful motives, And given that, there's a lot of weight on that side of the scale. So those things are heavy, right? And when we confront them, I think we have this irresistible desire to say, surely that can't be me. I'm not, that that can't be true of who I am. And that's how a lot of Paul's hearers would have responded. In particular, as we've said before, there are kind of two groups within Paul's hearers that he identifies in this letter. There are the Gentiles, those who were outside of God's people and just in the last few years with the spread of Christianity have come in. And then there were um, people who um, were Jewish in their background and had already kind of been within God's people. And people like that are especially the people that Paul is going after in these verses. That's why he starts talking about Jews and Gentiles in verses 9 and 10 and continues for the rest of this chapter. And here's the deal, all right? Many Jews in Paul's day had a lot invested in this kind of ethnic identity that they had, and they saw that as sort of giving them this religious identity, right? Israel had been chosen as God's people, and they took that to mean that they were somehow better than the people in the world around them because of the group that they were in, right? So they hear all those they's in in chapter one, and they're thinking, yeah, those terrible heathen Gentiles out there, that's true about them. But that's not us. We're the good religious people in this world. And Paul comes against this and says bluntly in verse 11, For God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. Or to put it another way, his judgment is impartial. God judges impartially. So Paul expands this point in a couple of ways. First, in verse 12, he simply notes that sin leads to death regardless of whether you call it sin or not. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So in chapter 1, he's been arguing, he's been making this one case, right, about people who are outside of God's people, and he's saying that even though they don't kind of have the law and God's word They're still sinning because just living in God's world should cause them to recognize and worship him. But now he kind of reverses it and he's saying to the other group of people, you do have God's law, but that doesn't change things because you still sin and you deserve the same consequences. God is impartial. After all, as he says in verse 13, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law. will be declared righteous so that he says so what if you sit in synagogue every sabbath in his world and hear them read the law so what if you read it yourself and even if you memorize it those are good things but those things don't make you righteous right only persistence in keeping the law with pure motives does that and like we said nobody is in that category And then in verses 14 and 15, Paul kind of pushes even harder by pointing out that sometimes those pagan Gentiles that these people like to look down on are actually better Christians, better obeyers of the law than they are. He says, you have the law, but sometimes you're actually worse than the people who don't have it. And what does that say about these markers of your identity that you love? God's judgment, he's trying to say in all these different ways, is impartial. He doesn't care about our family or our ethnicity or our country, or our church, or our outward religiousness, or any of that. He cares about our hearts and true righteousness, and that by that standard, all of us fail. Trying to stand on blood or church membership or whatever other thing we try to stake our claim on is like standing on a rock in the face of a hurricane. So what do we do with that? Well, I want to make explicit something first that I've done before when we preach, because I think it's just helpful as we read the New Testament and especially many of the letters in the New Testament. Um, I did it already even this morning, but when we read the New Testament, we see these discussions of Jews and Gentiles, right, that often come up. And we can fall into the trap of thinking that they mean only today what they meant back then, right? That Jews is addressing somehow people who are Jewish today. In Paul's day, the Jews and Gentiles he's speaking of are both now Christians, but that's a new event, all right? So what happened in Jesus is that these promises that were there from Israel's beginning, that they would be a light to the nations and the nations would be gathered in through them, are starting to come true, and so all the nations are starting to be gathered into God's people, We're all you and I today, if we are Christians, in that sense, part of biblical Israel, right? We're we're, we're sons and daughters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And there's a lot of complicated discussions, I know that butts up against, about ethnic Israel and all of that. And we are actually going to touch on them in a little bit when we get to Romans 9 through 11, because Paul actually talks about those issues. But we're not touching on that today. But the point is that um, we are all part of this one people of God now, right? Both ethnic Jews that acknowledge Jesus and we Gentiles who are now also acknowledging Jesus. We're all part of this one people of God, but it's not a new event for us the way that it is for Paul's hearer, right? I mean, I am a Gentile, but it is not sort of like a super recent event that I am now a Christian, which means that today when we read this, Jews doesn't mean ethnically Jewish people and Gentiles doesn't mean for us, as we apply it to ourselves, people who aren't. Rather, When we read Paul addressing Jews, probably the best way to read that is by those who are outwardly or culturally Christian, the church folks, religious people, all right? So the best advice I can give in reading texts about like this is that when you see him say something like, God will judge first the Jews and then the Gentiles, while there's an important part historically in understanding those categories, when I'm applying it to my life, the way I read that is that God will judge religious folks first and then the non-religious, Here's what that means in our particular text. It can be easy for us, sort of like those Jewish members of Paul's audience, to think that we are in the righteous group, that we are part of the good guys because of these external groups that we belong to. We are Christians because our family is or because the people around us are or because we we listen to, you know, to the Christian radio stations and put inspiring Bible quotes on things. We can hear about sin and sinners and think that God is talking about the people who aren't in those groups. The people out there, the non-religious people. But God's judgment shows no favoritism. This is one of the things that burdens me as a pastor in this place in the rural Midwest, right? Jesus tells this parable of people on Judgment Day, and they all think they're Christians, right? There's this huge group of people that stand before the throne and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we claim your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus says, away from me, you workers of evil. I never knew you. And I feel the weight of that because I fear that is exactly what it is going to be like for people in this part of the world where we live. People who all outwardly kind of assume that we're Christians. That, that, these, that in the Midwest, the Bible Belt, conservative Christian country... People are going to come to the final judgment, and some of them will stand before this throne and say, Lord, aren't we good Christian folks? Didn't we vote the right way and have good families and get baptized and go to church some? And with sadness in his eyes, Jesus will say to those people around us those same fearful words. And my heart breaks when I think about that. And I regularly pray that none of us would be such people because God's judgment is no respecter of persons or families or regions or labels. All alike will have to stand before God in his perfect holiness and answer for themselves and their actions and their intentions. And on that ground, none of us can stand. Which is the point of all of this. I know that that is a hard set of things to confront. But remember, Paul is building an argument, all right? He's making the case that none of us left to ourselves can claim to be righteous, that all of us are sinners, all of us are under the wrath of God. And that is heavy because he means, I think, to break that thing we named in our hearts at the beginning, right? When all of us look at the scales of justice and feel like we should be on the good side, Paul's whole goal in these first three chapters of Romans is to take that idea and snap it in two, right? Right? To confront us with our sin. But he's doing that so that he can then preach to us the good news. The good news. We get a hint of it in these verses. I didn't put it up there. But in verse 4 he says, Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That the reason God has not yet judged sin, Paul says, is because... He is seeking to bring us to repentance. That is what Paul is really calling us to when we feel the weight of our sin. Not to moral reform. I think that's this instinct we have that's so destructive. We hear scripture come to us and we say, we're good people. And then Paul comes and says, no, you aren't. And you feel the weight of that. And the conclusion you reach is that you need to just crack down and be better, right? But that's not what Paul's trying to tell us. Rather, what he's calling us to is repentance, And then faith, which is always the other side of that coin from him. Repentance, and then as he'll start talking about in verse 4, faith. Repentance means admitting the truth about our sin. Admitting how deep it goes. Admitting how bad we actually are. Admitting our sins, and then grieving them and seeking to turn our backs on them. That's what repentance means in the Bible. And then faith, as Paul will tell us soon, means looking up from those sins and trusting in God instead of ourselves. It means bailing on this whole idea that we can never be on the good side of the scales, but rather letting go of all of our actions, all of our good deeds, for the dirty rags that they are, letting them fall to the floor and grasping instead on Christ and the work that God has done through him on our behalf to trust in him for our salvation and claim him as our righteousness and look to him as our only hope for being justified at that judgment. Here's the thing about that repentance and faith, all right? That is hard, but that is the most freeing thing you can do in the face of that weight of sin. Because when you're under its weight, you don't have to try to bear up harder and bear up harder underneath it. Instead, you can just let it go. You don't have to pretend like you're better than you are, right? You don't have to have those dark moments where you're trying to hide it from others and hide it from yourself because you know that by the perfect law of God, you're condemned. Instead, you can, you can just say that by God's grace you don't have to live in that process anymore. You can just say, I am a sinner, hallelujah, because Jesus Christ came to save sinners like me. That is what it means to be a Christian. Not to figure out a way come judgment day through our own works to put ourselves on the good side of the scale, but to simply say, yes, I am condemned by that standard. And I am trusting in the work of Christ, in his death and resurrection, rather than in anything that I can engineer to save me. To say those words and believe them, Hallelujah! I am a sinner, and Jesus Christ came to save me. There is a freedom in that, and there is a true life in that, that any sort of just trying to perform and meet some standard by ourselves can never deliver to us. So let's all of us make that our hope. Would you pray with me? Father God, I feel the weight of that. I am in so many ways a sinner. In my actions at times and in my intentions and my heart, far more often I, um, yeah, I fall short of your glory and of that which is honorable and of seeking eternal life. Lord, I give thanks that while I am called to repent of those things and while I am called to turn away from them, those are not the, the things that will justify me, but that it is Jesus Christ and him alone that welcomes me into eternal life. I hope in that and I pray that each of us might make that our hope as well. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me and sing this morning?